My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Glenn Parker and his son, Michael Parker, may be joining us to talk about their book, Positive Influence, the leader who helps people become their best self. And there uh, will actually probably talk about their next book, uh, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But uh, first, I'd like to introduce Glenn. He is an internationally recognized workshop facilitator, organizational consultant, and conference speaker in the area of teamwork, collaboration, and team meetings. He is the author of 16 books, including the bestsellers, Cross-Functional Teams, Working with Allies, Enemies, and Other Strangers, uh, Team Players and Teamwork, New Strategies for Developing Successful Collaboration. Glenn's widely used instrument, the Parker Team Player Survey, has sold more than 1 million copies, and his seminal work on team player styles was featured in a best-selling CRM video. As a consultant for more than 40 years, Glenn Parker has helped create high-performing teams at hundreds of organizations, including Novartis Pharmaceuticals, Merck & Company, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Phillips Van Heusen, Telcordia Technologies, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, Glenn holds a master's degree from the University of Illinois and studied for the doctorate at Cornell University. Through his philanthropic endeavors, he has raised over $1.5 million for cancer research. His son, Michael, is a senior executive with 26 years of experience in financial services, so he brings a, a, just a whole other layer to these books that they uh, collaborated on. Um, uh, currently, he serves as the managing director for Rockefeller Capital, uh, based in New York City. Prior to his current position, Michael led RBC US Wealth Management Recruiting Strategy, where he led the firm to record-breaking growth in 2018. Previously, he was the Executive Vice President and Chief Development Officer with Hightower, where he led the firm to a listing in Inc. Magazine's 5,000 Fastest Growth Companies for five consecutive years. Throughout his career, Michael has been a featured writer for wealthmanagement.com, where he has shared more than a dozen articles, as well as authoring the industry award-winning Blueprint for Growth. So just to kick things off, we've, we've got a list of your accomplishments, some of your background, but I'd like to get an idea of really some of your early influences that led you to this path that you're on, your passion for leadership and, um, and team building. So uh, where where were you born and raised, Glenn? Well, I was actually born in New Jersey, but uh, grew up um, uh, in New York City and went to um, local local schools there, high school, went to college there. Uh, basically, a, you know, a, a, a city street kid, 
who grew up playing, you know, street ball and uh, playing basketball in the, the uh, schoolyards of, of the city um, and, you know, kind of loved that, that, uh, that, that whole life. And uh, so, and I went to college and, you know, lived at home and took the subway to, to, to college. Um, and, um, you know, I loved it. I had a, had a, had a great experience with that. Um, at a certain point um, in my young life, um, my parents were a little concerned about growing up on the streets and what that, uh, the influence that might have on me in a negative way. So they, they sent me to um, uh, summer camp, what people in New York call sleepaway camp. So you went away for two months, you got out of the city and you were out in the country and and I happened, they sent me because I, you know, was a, a basketball player and loved basketball. They sent me to a basketball camp. And um, then I kind of discovered this, the whole leadership thing, because I, I discovered that, um, you know, when it came time to picking teams, you know, I got picked as the captain of the team. And um, so, and I did um, you know, a, a lot of that and realized that, you know, it came relatively easy to me and uh, I was able to influence other people on the team. And there's a certain point in, in camp life at the end of the summer, it's almost like an Olympics where the team, where the, the camp is divided into two teams. So it could be 150, 200 kids on each, on, on each team. And when I was a camper, uh, when I was 15 years old, I was the camper leader of one of those teams. So it meant dealing with five and six-year-olds and eight and nine-year-olds and 13 and 14 years old and trying to get them involved and motivate them and encourage them and be supportive of them. Um, and this you know, came kind of naturally. And then I stayed on and became a counselor to um, younger, um, younger boys. Uh, and then later, you know, this, this competition came around at the end of the summer, and I became the counselor leader to uh, a group. So this was all part of this development of my, you know, myself as a, you know, a, a, as a leader of, of other people. And it, I, I had no particular training. Most of my training was observing other people who I thought, gee, they, they seem to know how to do it. And I kind of learned from that. Um, but of course, as I got older and went to school, you know, I learned, oh, there's actually a science to this. And people have actually studied this and know what they're doing. And then I became sort of fascinated by it, by it as well. Um, but those early influences are, I, you know, I still carry with me and I'm still friends with many of those childhood friends, those childhood you know, people that I, that I uh, interacted with and, you know, I, I, I value those relationships because of that. You were talking about influences and, and that kind of leads us to your book and, and really uh, who, who influenced you most? Uh, like there's, is there somebody that you kind of had in mind when you were uh, developing this book and maybe like, what it means to be a positive influence? Well, actually, um, you know, it's, some of these things, Dave, you don't realize until later on and you look back on them. I'm sure you've had this experience. You went through it and it was a, a ho-hum, you know, and then 
you realize, boy, that was very significant. And that's what happened with me with my first job out of graduate school. Um, and so let me take you back to that, um, actually a moment in that, uh, that time. It was my, my, as I said, my first job, my first boss, Larry, and now we're, now it's my first performance appraisal. So we're sitting down and he's gonna talk about, and I'm gonna talk about my, my experience over the last nine months, a year, and how that went. And it's going rather well. And he seems to think that I've done a, you know, a, quite a good job. And I have to tell you in all honesty, Dave, it was a pretty boring job. Let me, let me just put that out there. Mostly I looked things up and I wrote reports. I looked things up and I wrote reports. And I knew what was coming up in this performance appraisal at the end, it's always your development plan, right? You know, what do you wanna do going forward? What's your career goals? And I had observed that the people across the hall in leadership development, leadership training, seemed to be having a lot of fun. They were traveling all over the United States and Canada, conducting workshops, and they'd come back with travel stories and the workshop stories and all the interesting people they met. And I said, so I said to Larry, you know, um, I think I'd like to try that. Um, I was wondering if I could observe a class because I've never really seen one. So he said, well, as a matter of fact, Glenn, I'm traveling down south next week to do a couple of workshops. Why don't you come with me? I said, oh, that would be great. He said, the only thing is that I can't justify your travel expenses unless you teach something. So my lips started to quiver. <laughs> what? Larry, Larry, what do you mean? I don't know anything. He said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure something out. And he did. And I did. And I taught a little two-hour segment on the second day of a two-day workshop. And it went very well. And I said, wow, I think I can do this. And I said, not only do I think I can do it, I really want to do it. And that really changed the direction of my life. And I went from here, I made a sharp left turn to say I wanted to get into leadership training and leadership development. Now, the significant thing about that, Dave, is this, is that two things about it. One is, he didn't say to me, Glenn, uh, I'm, we're doing a two-day workshop. Why don't you teach the two days? I'll sit in the back of the room and I'll give you feedback at the end of the two days. No, he set it up so that I was positioned to be successful. He gave me two hours on the second day when the group was already warmed up and everything was going well. And all I had, you know, only thing I could do was screw it up. He made it possible for me to be successful. The second thing about that is that he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, that I could do this, that I could speak and I get up in front of a group and be effective. And that was a game changer for me. And that was really the first significant from a business standpoint, positive influence on me, another person. Um, 
and I've tried to, you know, follow his example going forward, but I'm, I'm in, in, indebted to him for, for that. So, yeah. So that's, you know, that's the thing that many people have told us that people see something in you, you don't see in yourself. And that is a, that, that's a powerful thing for, um, you know, for a, for a leader to do for someone else to be a positive influence. So, yeah. And that's, we have tons of stories in the book like that. It really seems like you described what it is to be a positive influence leader, but is there, is, um, well, I'm guessing there's a lot more to what, uh, what you've defined in the book as a positive influence leader. Um, can, can you maybe give a, a little bit more information on some different aspects of, of this kind of leader? Sure. Yeah, and, and I'll be glad to do that. And I'll, I'll tell you how we, we actually got to that point. But um, I can't imagine, you know, someone with your background uh, doesn't have someone in your life that was a positive influence on you that maybe was that game changer. Can you give us a little bit of uh, a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, well, there, there's so there's so many um, people that played roles in my development, but I'd say right off the top of my head, how this kind of led to where I'm at now. Uh, uh, early on in my fire department career, I uh, made a couple of mistakes and um, led to kind of a dark period. And, uh, and my uncle, uh, knowing that that was the case would check in on me. And uh, one day uh, when I was, you know, feeling sorry for myself, he said, listen, we all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. He's like the, the measure of a, of a man is not the mistakes he makes, but what he does after, you know, are you going to let that define you or are you going to uh, make your actions, uh, really tell people who you are, who you want to be. And so I, I was like, that was a big uh, moment for me. And uh, the next person in my career that really uh, influenced my mindset was Chief Mike Howell. He was probably the most consistent leader. He was just vigilant. Um, and if you think about the fire service, you never know when you're going to run a call. Uh, I happened to work in, in busy houses throughout my career. And Chief Howell, at the end of his career, he always wanted to be the, in charge of the busiest battalion. So I wanted to work for him. And it didn't matter what time of night, if he was running all day long, he would always come by the station and sit down and talk with me. And he knew that I'd be up because we were a busy fire station and, uh, you know, it'd be three, four o'clock in the morning and he'd roll in and I'd be sitting at the desk and we'd have a cup of coffee and talk and he'd let me bounce ideas off of him or my thoughts. 
And um, he just had a lot of good information as I was developing a leadership program for uh, new firefighters and, uh, and people that were wanting to develop their leadership skills. So he, he reinforced uh, a lot of ideas that I, well, reinforced thoughts on good leadership and, and what it means to be a good leader. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, the person that was most, um, like you, you say this, this turning point, it was uh, Chief Otto Drozd. He was the fire chief <laughs> for my department. And um, he gave me a budget to really develop the program and make it part of the department and part of its culture. And uh, it really uh, changed things for me. Uh, His mindset of the most most valuable commodity in any organization is the personnel and you have to work really hard at developing them. Those are those are great those are great stories and great examples, you know, of the kind of thing that that we we found, and so let, let me pick up on on those stories and and uh, tell you about um, what we found. We went in, Michael and I went in initially looking for a profile. What is a positive influence leader do? So we were looking for almost like a job description of that. And what we found was something different, which was that there's lots of ways that you can be a positive influence leader, all of them different, but all of them helpful. So we actually conceptualized that at the end when we got all the interviews together and talked to a wide variety of people across a lot of uh, occupations and industries and the like into four different styles or four different types of positive influence leaders. Um, it's We call them the supportive, the teacher, the motivator, and, and the role model. So let me start with the supportive one because uh, you, you gave examples of that, of somebody you know, who said to you, you know, you can do this, you can, you, but you know, you, you, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, you learn from those mistakes. That's what we call the supportive leader. Somebody who says, hey, you can do this. I got your back. I'm with you. I will help you. I'm not going to do it for you, Dave, but I will support you out there. I I will support you. Um, For example, one of the women, one of the people we interviewed was a woman named Jennifer. Jennifer was a student of history. She got that from her mother, who was who loved, you know, history. They bought an old house and and redid it, and, you know, did it in, in the style of the the original house. And she learned that from uh, her mother, and she wanted to. She went to college and ma- majored in American history, and people said to her, "What are you going to do with a history degree? How do you make a living, you know, with a history degree?" Great. Her mother said, by the way, to her, don't let anyone tell you you can't do something just because you've never done it before. 
Don't let anyone tell you you can't do something just because you've never done it before. And that's the kind of thing. And you know what Jennifer did with that, that history degree? Today, she's a senior curator at the Smithsonian Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And she is, she's living the dream because she's doing exactly what she's meant to do, wants to do, and is happy doing. Betsy, a woman that um, I met many years ago, uh, but I didn't know her story. She said to me, she went to college, she's a woman of a certain age, went to college to major in theater arts, assuming that a woman at that time really had only a few options available to her, and that was she could be an actress, she could be a playwright, she could be a director. That was pretty much it. Course, part of the curriculum, she had to take a course in technical theater. And the instructor, fellow she said, whose name was Dave, at one point said, Betsy, I want you to go up on that ladder and I want you to string these lights across the top of the stage. She says, <laughs> I grew up in a small apartment. We never even had a ladder in the house. <laughs> You're probably laughing about ladders. You know, like you, you lived with ladders. And she said, go up on that ladder. And first of all, it was not only the ladder, but you can imagine the, the how high that is going up on the top of the stage. He said, Betsy, you can do this. I'm here. You can do this. She went up. She strung the lights. She came back down. She said, wow. She said, from there, she learned how to use power tools. She built sets. <laughs> she, she strung lights. She knew how to do sound systems. She, got, she became an expert in the technical aspects of theater and pursued that as a career. It wasn't so easy, by the way, to break into a male-dominated field at that time. But that's a, whole, that's a whole other story. But she got that from this one incident, this person who was supportive and said, you can do this. The teacher is, sometimes it's a person who actually holds the title of teacher, but what they, this person does is teach you what you need to know in order to be successful. So that can be a teacher, it can be a professor, but it can also be a parent. It can be your boss. It can be somebody who um, tells you the way around, you know, how things are done around here you know, what, what some people call the culture. You want to get something done? Go talk to Dave down in, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the, the technical office. Um, so the, the teacher is a very important person because sometimes you need things and they had to do, do certain things. They also teach you a value system. What's the right way to do things? What's the positive way? What's the ethical way? Um, what's the right way of doing things, a, a value system that will carry you through your life. The motivator is the somebody who helps you find your, your true north, your core purpose, who you are, who you're supposed to be. And that's what Larry did for me, hearkening back to the story. He found this is who I, this is who I am supposed to be. I'm supposed to be that person that helps people learn and you know become better leaders themselves he found that 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 in me um 
And many people, and we talked to many women of us who were certain age who worked in corporate America who had difficult difficulties with people, you know, accepting them as a leader, as a manager in an organization. And uh, Nancy, a, a woman that I, I knew quite well, she worked in one of my for one of my clients. She got that from her boss, who said, "I want." He always gave me. She said the toughest projects. But he always said, if you need help, I'm here. Again, the good leader doesn't do it for you, but they help you get it done. They support you. There's somebody that's standing in the way. They're, they're going to help you get through that and around that barrier. Finally, the role model. We all know about role models. Role models are show you by example how to do it this is how it's done. And there's, you know, there's, and, and in many cases, role models, this is, the role models are interesting because sometimes uh, you may not have met that person. Sometimes role models can be that you know, far off person. You know, like, you know, if you're a sports fan, you know, Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan was a role model to a generation of not only just basketball players, but athletes. And the really smart ones, looked at Michael Jordan and they didn't try to copy his jump shot. They copied his work ethic. First one in the gym in the morning, last one to leave at night. And when he needed to get better at things, he did. Um, the Oprah Winfrey is the same thing. She's been a role model to a generation, mainly of women, but other people as well. Um, but also there are, for example, um, uh, Dick, who was a senior manager um, in healthcare, his first boss was uh, a role model to him. He said, I watched him. I watched how he did. I watched how he handled people. And I learned from the way he did that. But the main thing that I learned from him is, and this is very key as far as being a leader in particular, and also being a role model leader, which is his actions matched his words. He walked the talk. You can't tell me to do one thing and you do something else. The really effective leaders, there's a consistency between um, their talking and their walking. So those are the four styles. Those are the four types. And all of us, by the way, have the capacity to be all four of those. We tend to use, tend to be predominant in one of those four rather than, uh, but we all, we all can do all four. And with training and development, we can bring up those ones that we don't use as often. And to, to reference your book or to, to talk about your book a little bit, um, does it offer kind of, um, I don't know, a description or steps that somebody could take to develop areas that they're weaker in? Yeah, so we, um, um, Michael and I are both practitioners, you know, we're, we're, we're not theoreticians. So we didn't write this just to say, oh, this is, isn't this interesting. There's, for us, there's always a so what? Oh, that's interesting, Glenn. There's four different types. So what? What's the big deal? How do I use this? Yeah. How do I how do I how do I make it real in my organization? Well, a couple of things. There's a couple of things you can do. The thing that most people gravitate toward is that there's a survey 
in the back of the book. It's also been published separately in a booklet form, so it's a little easier to, to, to manage uh, and published by the same publisher, HRD Press. And it's a, it gives you a reading on what's your preferred style, the one that you use most often. And, but it also will tell you how do you become more effective in that style, using that style, but also how to be more effective leader, being more well-rounded, where you can bring in the strengths of all four of those styles. You want to be a motivator. You want to be somebody who helps people find what, what, what they personally need to do in order to be effective but you can also be supportive of that person. You also can teach them things they need to know. So you can be a more well-rounded person. So with the, after you fill out the survey, you get a reading on what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and what you need to, and then there's a, a template for you to follow to get from here to where you want to be, which is to be a more well-rounded team player. So the answer is, is yes. The other thing about the book that a lot of people like is at the end of each chapter, there are discussion questions that help you better understand what went on in that chapter. And what I found is that some people are using this, using it at a staff meeting. So each week or each, whenever they meet, once a month, they read a chapter, everybody reads a chapter, and then they discuss those four questions at the end of each chapter to kind of bring it home. So it doesn't become just a road experience where, oh, ho, ho, hum, I'm reading a book. And we also wanted that for just if, for the reader. The, when you get to the end of the chapter, before you go rushing ahead to the next chapter, stop and look at those questions. Like, who's been a role model in your life? And what did they actually do? And what did you learn for them? That would be a typical question at the end of a chapter. There you go. And prior to beginning this interview, we talked a little bit uh, about some of your experiences and, and some of your clients and maybe some of the, the stories that have been shared with you. But where I'm going with this is more specifically this time in, in history is just filled with a lot of unknowns. Uh, it's very stressful for a lot of people. And you told me a little bit about you know, leaders of hospitals or large organizations that you know, are struggling with, well, you, you mentioned Amtrak that you know, during the, the early days of the pandemic, everything shut down and what did they do? And so I'm really curious because this actually goes toward talking about your next book, Leading in a Time of Crisis, or is that the title or is that a working title? It's a working title. <laughs> but that's essentially yeah. what it's about. It sounds pretty good. Yeah, that, that, that's true. Yeah. So how, how can I help? Well, I'm just curious uh, about what you've found so far in, in researching for this book, what are some of those traits that you've found to be most successful in the leaders that have really been, you know, they've been successful in this time? Yeah, great question. And that, that's, you know, what, um, that's basically what we looked at is, you know, 
what did they do? What were the challenges you faced um, and, and how did you handle them? One of the things that was pretty universal is that the, 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 the effective leader was there. They were visible, they were present, uh, they were transparent. Um, if they were a hospital CEO, they were walking the floors of the hospital every day, not just the CEO, but the whole leadership team at various times. Being present for people, because they were the, the staff, particularly the people in direct, the frontline staff that were directly involved in patient care were highly stressed. Um, and so they would walk the floors of the hospital uh, in much the same way that the COO of Amtrak was walking the, the, the uh, train, the uh, platforms uh, in the stations and riding the cars and talking to the employees and saying, how's it going? What do you need? How can I help? What's concerning you? Um, and responding to that so that they weren't up they weren't sitting in their corner office coming up with great plans. They were out amongst the people. As, as one person, one, one, one of the CEOs said to me, you know, I, I relearned that old management principle of management by walking around. You can't find out what's going on until you're, unless you're out there. And that's what they did a lot of. And they found that to be very powerful. And it also was doing, they were learning things that they needed to know and to act on, because that's one of the things they said, you know, it's one thing for people to tell you, we need more PPE, you know, or we need more backup staff, or, or we need some kind of help. Uh, it's another thing to actually do it. So they listened, responded, and acted. They also um, were open and honest about what was going on. This is where the transparency came in. Uh, look, here's what I know now. Here's what I think is going on right now. Here's where I think we're where we are. Um, but stay tuned because things are changing. Um, and when I know, you will know. They, 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 they ramped up communication during this time, ramped it up dramatically to let people know what was going on, what they were doing. Um, you know, there was, there, they talked about some other leaders, I didn't happen to talk to these people, who were concerned about getting everything right initially. So they, with, they withheld and they were waiting for, you know, a complete assessment, a complete uh, plan for what was going to be done. And that was just exactly the wrong thing to do. The thing is to say, look, this is what we know now. This is what we're doing based on right now. But things may change in the future. And as we've known over the past two years, things have changed. They, they, they have. And so the really effective leader changes. Um, they also, this is one of the key things too, is they also didn't, they told the truth. 
they didn't minimize, they didn't deceive, they didn't, they didn't deflect, they, oh, it's not that bad, oh, we'll get through this. Um, if it was bad, they told the truth and they said, yes, but we're on this, we're working on it. That was, um, you know, I think uh, th those are some really critical things, but the, 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 the idea of being visible and being available and being present was, and, and sometimes it was scary as hell to do that. And privately, some of them admitted they were afraid of getting COVID themselves. It just because they were close to it, and you know we did. There was so much we we didn't know at at, at the time, um, but the key thing was to be a good listener, to be listening to people, to be responding, to be listening some more, and to be clear about the kind of response um, that um, you're you're going to give. Uh, you want me to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. On. This is great. <laughs> Okay, I, I think the other thing that people found is that, um, you know, when I, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, adversity breeds opportunity. You know, um, apparently Benjamin Franklin said this as he said so many profound things uh, that people have adopted that out of adversity comes opportunity and out of adversity comes often innovation. And that's also what happened is that people became, got creative and did a number of things. For example, the, the CEO of a, um, of a company that owns 21 Red Robin franchises. People who don't, who are listening to this who don't know Red Robin, it's a chain of restaurants. It's like uh, Applebee's, uh, for example, would be in, the, in, in, in that same vein. Um, <clears throat> and he said, prior to this, the 21 restaurants would compete against each other. Everybody wanted to be the number one restaurant in the company. And they had all their metrics. And uh, so they would be very, um, very competitive. Out of this, he said, they, every, we suddenly became very collaborative. So what was happening, because people were, you know, ha had to, you know, innovate on the fly. So each restaurants, individual restaurants were making changes. You know, some of them were reducing the menu, some were reducing the hours, some were using, you know, unusual methods to, you know, to recruit new, new employees to make sure they were staffed up, they changed their hours, the like. Um, they were sharing that information. So, he could, and he was, the, again, the communication. You know, he would meet regularly, you know, they, they would Zoom meetings on a regular basis and people would talk about what, what they were doing and the things that seemed to work well. And they were also sharing some things that didn't work well. And then they were looking for help. Like, how do I handle this? You know, I got people that, you know, are coming into and, and used to the full menu and they're not getting the full menu because we can't do it now because, well, first of all, we don't have the deliveries and there's a lot of re reasons why we can't do it. But um, so we were learning from each, they were learning from each other. They were um, coming up with innovations on, you know, how to do things. And that was, that was one of the, uh, real uh, learnings from them. Um, 
And, they, you know, other people said, you know, we, we had to just adjust on the fly. We, we started to look at rules and regulations that we live by and question them. Like, why are we doing this? Oh, we, that's the way we've always done it. Well, well no, we can't afford that now. It, 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 we can't. We don't have the time. We don't have the people. What is in the best interest of our customers and our employees? And in most cases, the, the ones who were really smart were putting the employees first because the employees were the heart of this. And what we've learned is that the, 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 the companies that have been come out of this very successful are the ones that put their employees first. Because, and so people say, well, what about your customers? You're, you know, they should be first. They should, customers should be number one. You can't have, this is, you know, this is me preaching here. You can't have good customer service without good employee relations. When you treat the employees well, they treat the customers well. That's, I, I believe, is a firm axiom. And I see this all the time with people. Um, when the employees are happy, they feel appreciated. I wrote, I wrote an article, I think you saw it on, uh, for CEO World uh, about um, calling creating a great place to work. And it's based on this recent research. And it talks about the, the companies the, the, in all different industries who treat their employees well, um, the patients or the customers or the clients have a good experience as well. And um, that's, and the fact that you also appreciate them, you re recognize them, you thank people for what they're doing, you know, and people, you know, and it's not that, it's not that, it's not that tricky. You know, it, it's not that hard to say, Dave, thanks very much for doing a great job under very trying conditions. I appreciate it. I don't have to give you a plaque. Most, that's what most people want, is, is that kind of recognition. And that's why they stay. Did I preach too much here? <laughs> oh, no, that was great. It, it really reinforced a lot of <clears throat> what we've been talking about. And uh, one thing that I noticed you mentioned when you were talking about the communication, I, I recognized a couple of the steps in what is called an after action review. And I believe that you talk about it in your book, but it, that comes from uh, military special operations. Yes, and, and it's now like it, it, the leadership program that um, I used to teach, it utilizes that same, yeah. same set of uh, principles you know you you well i i'd like to defer to you will you talk about the after action review yeah um i wish i could say that more organizations used it but i can um i i think most of them said to me we sort of did it informally that was their answer and i think they probably did it informally informally they learned and said that didn't work, this did work. So what do you wanna do in an after action review? You wanna sit down and say, okay, what did we do? What worked well? What didn't work well? What would we do different next time? And that's basically all you, all you have to do. 
it's getting the players in the room though. You got to get the right players in the room. You got to get a mix of people, you know, at all levels in the organization who can answer that question. But I, I think it's absolutely critical to to do that. And I, you know, I, I obviously you you agree with that. But I, I think it's really important um, for organizations to sit down who went through a difficult time like we've had in the last two years and sit down and say, you know, what did we do? What went well? What didn't go well? What would we do different next time? Um, so, and the ones that did it really benefited from it. And now they say, we actually, you know what we have now? We've got a crisis playbook. We have, you know, we, we, we're ready this time because everybody, pretty much, almost everybody was blindsided. It was like, what? I don't know what, the, you know, I mean, think about, you know, think about the hospitals. They had no testing. They, they, didn't, they didn't know how to diagnose what they had. You know, you go from, you know, um, from five patients in the ICU to, you know, to 50 patients in, in two weeks. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're lacking resources and you're lacking protective equipment and the like. But so, yeah, so I, I think that's really critical. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up and emphasized that because I think that's, that's a big takeaway for organizations. Well, one, one thing that I'd like to add for those listening, because if you just take it on face value, I think it can be used uh, to the organi organization's detriment if it's if it's used wrong, because the the way it I, I've seen it used in many different ways. The way that it works best is the the person leading the after action review would address something um, that didn't go well and they own it. They find how maybe they could have made that situation better and they speak up and they and they own it. And it really, it's leading by example. So the other people involved, they can think about what was their role in that particular operation and what are some things that they could have done differently. And when they speak up, if there was a mistake made or something, it's a time where everybody, it, it's so important for everybody to feel like they're safe in talking about the mistakes that they made. Because if they don't feel safe, they can, you know, not, you're not there all the time. So if you didn't see it happen and nobody else did, they could very well just say, well, no, I, I think everything went good. And you'd never learn that lesson. So if you can create an environment where, where everybody feels safe to talk about the lessons that they learned, well, you know, I, I did this and this is what happened. And I, I know better now that I, I shouldn't have done this. If I had done this, everything would have worked out a lot better. And that's actually what I ended up doing to correct the problem that my actions caused. And so if they feel safe in that, then, you know, everybody wins. Yeah. So I, I think you're bringing up a good point because it's the, you know, it's, the, it's the ground rules, you know, we're, we're, this is not the blame game. 
we're, 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 we're trying to find out, we're trying to, this is a learning process here. And that's kind of why you need a good facilitator running that meeting so that we don't, it doesn't become, you know, we're going to pick on one person, you know, you shouldn't have, you know, turned the lights out at that point. Um, no, um, that's not what we're here for. And so you, you really need to kind of set the ground rules, set the norms for something like that. And also to get, you know, somebody who knows how to run, you know, a, a group's a group session. Um, so, yeah, no, I see so people in some industries and in some companies, they're very comfortable with this. There's something called a project review. So at the end of a project, whether it's, the, you know, the development of a new software system or, you know, producing a new pharmaceutical, before that, that team disbands, they do a project review. And they ask basically the same questions. What went well, what didn't, what can we do differently next time? Um, so they, they, many of them are used to doing this and should do it. And we, we, we certainly want, we, we certainly encourage that. And that, you know, out of this whole thing, you know, you know what, what do we learn from this? So, um, but the other thing that, um, you know, I, I wanted to mention out of this is the, the that I think is worth emphasizing, and I, I mentioned it earlier, was the, the innovation that came out of this. And I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's so important to recognize that and, and to allow the people in the organization to innovate. And what we learned is that, you know, in this time when many people were also working from home, so you didn't have, you know, close supervision. People were kind of working on their own and doing things. And even if, you know, in, 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 in hospitals and in other places where they were frontline employees were dealing with customers or patients or others, um, they had to make decisions on the fly. So that one of the things that became very important was that leadership had to be comfortable with empowerment. They had to be comfortable empowering employees. And most of them were like, wow, you know, these folks did really well. And they discovered that the, the employees, uh, one, knew what, knew what they were doing and were, were making decisions on the fly that really worked because they were right there at the moment. They, they weren't up, you know, around the conference table making the decision. They were right on the job. And so empowerment became one of the innovations <clears throat> of, of this time, because in many cases, it wasn't possible to watch what everybody were doing. And second of all, the, you know, people got, became more appreciative uh, at acknowledging that what, what the employees know is really valuable and, and just let them go. Um, and what we're also doing, Dave, at that time, when you, when you empower someone, you are saying something really positive about them, which is uh, you, you're saying, I trust you to do the right thing, to do the best thing for our customers, for our patients and the like. And that's another form of employee recognition and employee appreciation is to empower people. Um, and you, 
you know, you can always, it, 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 you always tell, you know, you know, in an organization, when you say to somebody, well, um, can you do this? Because, you know, it, it's not something that's, you know, on the list or on the menu or something. <clears throat> and the person says, yeah, we can, I'm sure we can do that. As opposed to, I'll have to check with my boss first. Um, now, they're, they're not saying, you know, they're not making outrageous claims and, and doing, they're, they're, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're doing everyday things that seem just, you know, pretty okay, that would make the customer happy or make the patient feel better. Um, and empowerment's a big part of that. That's a big part of what our, our learnings out of this is that there was so, that's another thing that ramped up was empowerment along with communication. <clears throat> so, yeah, so it was um, um, an important outcome of all of all of what we've learned, and I'm, you know, putting a lot of this together now because <laughs> we haven't done all we haven't done all the the synthesis yet. But this is great. This has been actually helpful to me because you've you know you've gotten me to you know to think through a lot of the things that have been floating around you know, in my mind, based on, you know, these interviews that we've had with people. So, so thank you for that. <clears throat> it's, it's really interesting. A lot of what you've been talking about, it really made me think about, well, something that I described earlier to you before we, we started recording was uh, leading in crisis is so much like leading a fire ground operation you know the yeah. the way that you have to communicate the way that you have to trust the people that are on the interior of that building um being able to be the eyes outside and communicate that information effectively to the people inside you know whether it's the location of the fire or you know smoke conditions that could tell you whether or not what they're doing is effective um and it's just, uh, I don't know, there's so many parallels uh, to everything that you were just talking about and, you know, operating on a fire ground. I'm not, it, it's not surprising at all. You know, I think there's so many of these things that transfer across <clears throat> occupations and industries uh, and organizations. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm clear about that because, you know, I talked about, but we also, you know, uh, interviewed, you know, people in, in, uh, in, in corporate jobs. Um, we interviewed uh, two people who ran nonprofits during this time um, that uh, had to pivot and do um, all kinds of things differently because it just, th they weren't, things weren't available to them. So it, it ran across. Um, we talked to the head, you know, the Clinton Foundation has a presidential scholars program where you know, um, they're training people for leadership in the future. And um, what they did and the innovations that they did, because, you know, as, as the leader said to me of that scholars program, he said, you know, our, our secret sauce was getting all these people together. These, you know, these people who have been really vetted to, you know, it, it's a big deal to get into the presidential scholars program. Um, that um, suddenly we couldn't meet anymore. And one of the, you know, the things that people liked the most about that program was learning from each other and they couldn't, you know, COVID prevented that. So they had to 
innovate all kinds of ways to learn during this time. And so it got it cut across all kinds of all kinds of work. And um, so that that's really the powerful message out of this out of this whole thing. So um, and leaders found we asked them this question, you know, what'd you learn during this time? What'd you learn? What'd you learn about yourself? And um, you know, people learned a lot. Uh, they learned they learned a lot about themselves, and they learned a lot about their people. Um, they learned that you know they could. There was a, most of those people that worked for them they could trust to do a good job. And I was it, I don't know if they, they they weren't quite sure about that beforehand. Um, they learned you know about themselves as leaders that they could handle certain things, but some things they couldn't handle. You know, I mean, quite frankly, you know, one one gentleman told me that he had a heart attack during this time because the pressure, he took everything so personally. He worried so much about his people that uh, he said, I had to learn to, you know, back off and not take everything as personally as I, I, I was. Um, so people, they improved, I mean, the crisis also was a learning experience for them as individuals. And, um, and I think that was that was a great thing too. I mean, given the choice, they probably wouldn't want to have to go through it again <laughs> as a learning experience. But um, they they they're more powerful now as a result of that. So that was that, that's quite quite outstanding. I was hoping to have your your son on as well because I just think that the dynamic from you know different backgrounds and different viewpoints or different perspectives uh, would have been pretty interesting but you know your son probably better than most from yeah. your perspective what um, what do you think he would have said uh, from his position or his vantage point yeah I, I think one of the things that that he values and I think he saw in leaders, uh, during this time, and I think this is true of him, is um, the resilience, you know, what, um, you know, Angela Duckworth co calls grit, you know, the people who can handle a situation uh, and bounce back from adversity, um, the people who, you know, prepare. Um, you know, Michael once said to me, Dad, I'm, I, I, I will rarely be the smartest person in the room at that meeting, but there's no one in that room that's going to have outworked me in preparing for that meeting. And I think that's what we, what he, he would find from the, because he said to me, when, when some of the people that I interviewed, I could tell how they would be as leaders by the way they prepared because we send out the questions in advance of the interview. And so he's talking about people that, that came prepared to talk about you know, their responses to those questions and they came prepared really well. And so he would say that the really effective leaders in the time of crisis were people who were resilient, who could come up against a barrier, bounce back, and, and, and keep going forward. Um, and I, 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 I believe that's true. Uh, it, it, it was a tough time. And, you know, 
And so correct me if I'm wrong, because what I what I feel like you just said is that resilience is uh, well more noticeable or it's better achieved. Uh, people bounce back quicker if they show up prepared for the unknown. Okay. Yeah. Is that no? I, yeah. Well, they show up prepared. It's it's kind of hard to prepare, you know, for the unknown. But they show up, they show up prepared. Um, they, you know, this is a phrase that Michael and I use a lot. You know, they, they put the work in. Are, are you willing to put the work in? And that's what I, and some of the stories that I told you earlier, they, they're willing to put the work in. They're willing to, you know, work long hours, walk in the floors of the, of the organization and checking on people. That's putting the work in. And then responding when people say, I need more of this. I need time off. I'm stressed out. Um, they, and making you know, mental health services available for people during this time. That was a big, that was, that was a big factor as well. But yeah, um, yeah, put, you got to put the work in. Well, uh, I, I, I'd say, you know, preparing for the unknown in the context that I'm kind of thinking is, you know, you can't train firefighters for every eventuality for every type of incident that they might come upon, but you can train them to use the equipment and to be able to think outside the box. Right. And yeah. Uh, and, and, and to, from a leader standpoint, empower them to think outside the box. Right. To say, I've never seen this one before, but this is what I think will work. I think is what, what you're reaching for there. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but there's a, there's a leadership culture that says, yeah, we're not going to come down on it. If you try something, when you encounter a situation that we haven't trained for. Um, (laughs) So I think that's a really important part of it. And a lot of the things people they, they relearned some things that they knew all along and said, wow, this stuff really works. This stuff really does work. So yeah, but resilience is a big, you know, it's a big part of a successful leader. I think it's a big part of success in life, whatever you do. Yeah, can you bounce back from adversity? One thing that I noticed in, in preparing for this, there was um, mention of, uh, uh, 360, a 360 degree tool. And I don't know that you've mentioned it specifically, but I, I was wondering if you could talk about that because it, I, I feel like maybe that is one of the tools that you use a lot in your, your yeah. program. Um, and uh, yes, so I talked about the survey in the back of the book and the fact that it is published in a separate booklet uh, just because it's easier than to fold back a book and to fill it out. There's also a 360 version of that survey so that the 360 version is built for other people on your team um, to fill it out on you, to give you their perspective on 
you as a leader? Which of these four styles do you use most predominantly? And what can you do to be a more effective leader going forward? So what some organizations do, either a team gets together and does the self-assessment and the 360 on all the people in the room, or people in leadership development in the company, uh, in talent and uh, talent management, do the 360 version as part of a leadership training, much like you do when you know you're 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 doing leadership training. You could incorporate this into your leadership training. Um, there's three booklets that HRD Press has published um, for us. It's the self-assessment, the 360. The third booklet is the leader's guide on how to do all of this. I obviously can't do all of this in our conversation today, but there's a lot of very specific how-tos in that third booklet of you know uh, options that you would have and best ways, best practices for doing this and how do you analyze the results and how do you help someone become a more effective positive influence leader because ultimately that's our goal. How do you become a more effectively positive influence on the people in your organization? Um, and that's our mission. You know, that, 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 that's really our mission. And that's what that, um, that's what that um, survey does. So, but of course, reading the book would be helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now that you mentioned that, what uh, what is the best way to acquire one of your books? And um, when do you expect your next book to be available? Oh, that second question. Who? <laughs> You're talking like a publisher now. <laughs> okay, so let me let me let me try to let, let me answer the first question. Uh, the the book is called Positive Influence: The Leader Who Helps People Become Their Best Self. Um, it's available from HRD Press, and you, their website is hrdpress.com. Um, it's also available as every book in the world is from Amazon. And so you can, you can buy it uh, on Amazon as well. Um, and let me, let, let me say this, that because I've, I've enjoyed this conversation um, so much that I will make this offer to, to your audience. First of all, I will, I will send you uh, Dave, a copy of the book, a, a signed copy of the book. Um, the first five people that uh, send me an email requesting a copy of the book, I will send them a complimentary copy of Positive Influence. They need to obviously send me their mailing address. They send it to Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at thepositiveinfluenceleader.com. That's the website for the book that has a lot of resources. It's thepositiveinfluenceleader.com. And the email is glenn at thepositiveinfluenceleader.com. First five people, we will send them a complimentary copy. So if somebody listening was interested in uh, I don't know if you still uh, make house calls. Do you still go and <laughs> and uh, talk to uh, organizations? 
I, I talk, I do talk to organizations and, and, and certainly Michael does. And, you know, um, certainly he's done some uh, speaking at conferences and uh, leadership development uh, seminars with companies. Um, so, and you could, you can um, contact him as well at the, the website. He, he would be Michael at thepositiveinfluenceleader.com. Um, so, uh, and there's more stories there too. Um, what's interesting, and I'd love to hear from the, you know, from uh, your listeners, um, since the book was out, people come up to us all the time and tell us their positive influence story, much like my Larry story and your story, your stories. Um, and so we started to collect them and they're on the website. There's a blog called Stories of Positive Influence. Um, must be 20 or 25 stories that people sent into us that we posted there. And if anybody in your audience would like to send us their story, uh, you know, we'd be glad to post it and give them a free copy of the book as well. Um, so yeah, so we, we love hearing the stories because they're, they're inspirational. The, the stories are meant to be inspirational, but also instructive. You can learn from the stories. I'm much more, and you, you've heard me talk pretty much for the last hour or so, mostly I've been telling examples and stories rather than saying, here are the five ways you can be a, you know, a more effective leader. Um, so uh, I think they're powerful um, instruments for people learning. Um, and so that's why we use them. Great. So I will have the link to your website, your, your email addresses, and uh, I'll have that in the show notes. So all of you listening, reach out to Glenn and uh, I can't wait to read your book. And um, what I do have on my website is a, a recommended books page. And okay. I have a, a grouping of featured books. So uh, typically what I do when I come across a really good book that uh, really speaks to me or I feel would speak to the audience, I, I put it in that featured books area of my website. Uh, so what I'll do, I'll put yours up there. I'm sure it'll be up there by the time uh, this, this episode publishes. So um, I look forward to reading your book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I, I always think about these uh, podcasts as a, as a conversation. And um, you, did, you, you do a great job of making it conversational and making it comfortable. And I think as a result, you know, everybody benefits and particularly your, your, your audience. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for saying that. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, Please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. 
and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.